Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. An Elio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert David Lazar. David is a writer and the editor of Hotel America. Among his many publications, he is also the author of The Body of Brooklyn, and he co-edits the 21st Century Essay Series at Ohio State University Press. Let's hear what he has to say about the scandal surrounding A Million Little Pieces. Hi, David. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. So I I would love to start off by getting a little backstory on James Fry, um, his career and kind of what led him to write uh, the memoir, A A Million Little Pieces. Right. Uh, I, you know, I don't know too much about the backstory other than the autobiographical details that he represents. Uh, I, I know about the book, and I certainly know about the backlash against the book uh, and the arguments, you know, that have emerged, which, which quite frankly, are fairly typical arguments for and against uh, the whole idea of, of truth value that have been around for for quite a long time in nonfiction writing. So a- after the the book is published and uh you know it gets a lot of attention right off the bat 
How did it that vary from a type of publicity that is typically expected from a memoir about a, a relatively unknown author? Right. Well, there were two things working in his favor. One is uh, uh, the book was published by Nan Talese, who carries a lot of heft, uh, has been around for a long time. So he had a major publisher. And then, of course, you know, the big push was uh, Oprah's recommendation. Uh, and uh, Oprah added it to her list, which was interesting, too, because she had tended at that point to mostly recommend classics, Faulkner, or quote-unquote American classics, uh, Faulkner, Steinbeck, etc. Uh, so uh, uh, this helped the book enormously. Uh, and, you know, as we know, it became a huge bestseller, sold millions of copies. And, uh, you know, and then... <laughs> And then the the bubble, uh, not too long after, within a few months, uh, started bursting. Uh, you know, thanks to to some good uh, investigative reporting, especially by Smoking Gun. And behind the scenes, people were starting to question, you know, the plausibility of of the things in the book. At, right. At what point? Um, at, at, at one point, there's even a reporter who asks uh, the publisher why there's no author's note to clarify the facts. And she's told, oh, this is just a slip up. Um, do memoirs typically have disclaimers? Why did this one not have one? Well, you know, it really varies based on on the kind of memoir it is. Uh, you know, to give a, a bit of backstory to this too. I mean, there, there were a couple of major incidents, uh, I think, that sort of underlie the the Fry, uh, what happened with Fry. Uh, one is uh, about Lillian Hellman. Uh, and uh, Lillian Hellman in the early 70s was on the, uh, uh, not Lillian Hellman, I'm sorry, uh, Mary McCarthy mm. was on the uh, Dick Cavett show. And he was talking about Lily. He asked her about Lillian Hellman, which was a complete setup because they were fierce rivals. And uh, Hellman had published uh, a very acclaimed book called Pentimento. And a chapter from Pentimento called Julia was turned into a, a movie directed by Fred Zinnemann with Jane Fonda, Vanessa Redgrave, uh, about uh, the time when Hellman had uh, slipped into Nazi Germany to bring money to uh, help uh, Jews and others get out, et cetera. And uh, everyone just accepted this, and the movie came out, and the movie was acclaimed and won Oscars and all of that. So anyhow, uh, Cavett asked McCarthy about Hellman, and McCarthy famously replied, every word she's ever written is a lie, including and and the, the. <laughs> uh, well, Hellman sued her. The next day, for defamation in New York, uh, in New York City, the, the trial dragged on for years. But it brought this attention. Part of it is the kind of attention a book gets, and uh, well, this is one of the connections to Fry. Uh, if Fry had never been had never sold five million copies, I don't think he would have gotten uh, any of this. W would have happened if he had sold you know three thousand copies. Uh, Hellman, obviously, very well known, very well respected. And so it brought this scrutiny to her work. And as it turned out, uh, the Julia chapter, uh, the much regarded Julia chapter, her uh, going into her, a Southern Jewish writer, going into Nazi Germany in like 1941, 
which everyone should have realized was absurd to begin with, was uh, totally fabricated. Uh, and it really damaged Hellman's career uh, at the end of her life. Um, uh, the, the second incident I would bring up, which happened, uh, oh, maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, was Vivian Gornick was giving a, a talk at Goucher College. And uh, the audience was a mixed audience of literary writers and journalists. They started asking her uh, questions about memoir writing uh, and about truth value, uh, questions of truthfulness and, and memoir writing. And she said, well, you know, of course, I, uh, I do some invention of characters. I compress uh, incidents and time sequences, uh, et cetera. And the journalists in the audience were appalled. And it just so happened somebody from NPR was there and broadcast a story about this. And it became, it really uh, revived a question which never completely dies uh, in nonfiction writing, which is the question of, of truthfulness, uh, truth and truthfulness, which, by the way, sort of epistemologically are different things, right, mm. in nonfiction writing. Right, you, you can uh, uh, you can approach a work with an attitude of truthfulness and not render the truth. Of course, right? You, you can believe what you're writing is true, and it may not be true. So that would be oh. a quality of truthfulness. Uh, truth is, you know, a very different issue. So anyhow, that that's just a bit of background to you know these uh, the fact that fried. The case of Fry wasn't the first case of this. Literary hoaxes, fabrications, forgeries have existed for hundreds of years, uh, and there are lots of famous ones. And you know, part of it has to do with the attitude of the writer. I mean, what the writer was trying to do. I mean, some are honest fabrications, <laughs> uh, honest inventions of untruth. Uh, others, in the case of Fry, uh, you know, are just you know a series of of inventions purporting to be truth, which is of course the problem with Fry. He just lied. <laughs> to, he just lied. Make, <laughs> yeah, to make the point rather directly. Yeah, right. Well, I I'm, I would like to ask you just because we talk about this uh, in our main episode about the the style that the the book is written in. Um, First of all, why do you think readers are so drawn to the book? And second of all, do you think this kind of stream of consciousness writing uh, contributed to somehow the audi audience's like buy-in to the story? Yeah, those are good questions. Um, so uh, why was it such a big hit? Well, I think it's digestible. I don't think he has a particularly complex or in fact, a particularly interesting style. It's rather plainly written. And so, and there's just a lot of salacious stuff in there, right? There's, you know, a lot of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, to say the least, as well <laughs> as arrests and prison, you know, prison time and, you know, that kind of thing. So I think, I think the book goes down fairly easily stylistically. Uh, and, you know, of course, he presents the classic redemption story uh, at the end, which people love. Um, and, uh, and you know, as you suggest, also in terms of style, it's broken into these lists and short sentences. And uh, it's, again, I, I would call the style a, a fairly flat style. It's not a very ornate or or even a, a very self-aware style on a certain level. Uh, so I, I think that made it 
again, very uh, uh, a very easy book for for people to to sort of dive into. You know, especially if if they had a taste for the kind of uh, uh, again salaciousness that he was peddling. Yeah. <laughs> and what were some of the questionable parts of of the book? How does he embellish? Oh, I think he does more than than embellish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, this I I reread. I haven't reread the book in in many years, but uh, I was rereading the the smoking gun expose yesterday, and oh, there are just any number of of uh, incidents. I think the most objectionable uh, of which might have been his involvement with the death of this young woman who was killed by a train, and apparently he, you know, he just. And so there's he indulges in a form of uh, of self laceration about his possible involvement in that, and as it turns out, he had no involvement in that. Well, I mean, there's a level of cruelty to to both you know uh, the survivors, her parents, the people who surrounded her, uh, you know, as as well as uh, you know pawning off this again himself as this kind of sacrificial. Uh, guilt-bearing lamb, uh, you know, to the public that, uh, you know, that I think is is uh, kind of terrible. Yeah, but there there are there's there are lots of incidents in the book. Uh, um, Smoking Gun went through his arrest records and couldn't find most of that stuff. So uh, he's it, it, what it comes down to is he's not as bad a boy as he says he was. <laughs> Oh, and and when it comes to memoirs, where is the line typically drawn? Well, you know that that too is a difficult question, mm-hmm. and part of it has to do again with the the amount of of scrutiny a work a work gets. Um, if you're talking about a work of of literary memoir, which are published by a small press, say, or a university press. Uh, the sales aren't going to be huge, and they're just not going. I mean, no one's going to bother to scrutinize the claims in the book unless it gets a certain amount of public attention. So I'm sure there, you know, there's all kinds of invention and memoir writing that goes unnoticed just because you know no one has the time, energy, or, or care to to do it. Um, you know, where the line should be is is a really slippery question. Uh, uh, you know, I always told my students I, I thought of myself as a as a strict constructionist when it came to to truth. Or as one of my students, you know, once quoted me more succinctly, you know, don't lie. Uh, now, if you come with the attitude that you're not going to lie, that doesn't mean you're always going to tell the truth, right? Uh, it means you're you're going to attempt to tell the truth, uh, and uh, and your attitude is going to. Be be one of representing things as truthfully as as you can remember them, because after all, memoir, you know, from the French is about memory, and memory is an unreliable narrator. So, uh, so it's about the you know the uh, the attitude of trying to to remember things as clearly to understand them as well as one can, rather than the idea that there's you know some great. Uh, icon of perfect truth one can one can meet up with now do you think that writers of memoirs right now feel a need to embe- uh, embellish 
in order to gain more notoriety or, or, or simply to sell more copies? I think part of the problem with contemporary memoir, and and by contemporary, I mean, let's say memoir of the last 25 years or so, mm-hmm. is that, um, uh, you know, it tends to rely on exotic narratives. And by exotic narratives, I mean narratives that, again, are either sexy or, uh, or involve some kind of, you know, uh, illicit behavior. Uh, um, the re- again, the redemption memoir, et cetera. And, you know, for my money, an interesting memoir is, uh, is a memoir based that's interesting because of the style of the writer mm-hmm. uh, and the way the writer attempts to, to just understand what it means to be a human being alive in their world. Uh, rather than the exoticness of them. I'm not really interested in exotic narratives, you know. Uh, if I want an exa- exotic narrative, I'll probably go to travel writing, you know, uh, <laughs> less so to memoir. Yeah, but I think you're right, and that 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 is something. Most of the of the really popular memoirs we could probably cite over the last bunch of years have been memoirs that that had some kind of narrative hook that was. Mm. Uh, that the you know the audience you know really wanted to hear about because it was again more uh, more exotic more intense than their own experience perhaps. Now, how when in terms of publishers, how responsible are they for fact checking uh, when it comes to memoirs and, and and do they would you say they turn a blind eye in order not to ruin a really good story? <laughs> I, I think that's frequently true. Again, uh, smaller press publishers, and I think a lot of the most interesting work that's literary work that's done in the United States is what I would call sub-trade work, uh, which is to say work that's published by really excellent small presses and literary presses. Uh, they don't certainly don't have the resources by any means, mm. you know, to investigate the claims you know, of a given autobiography or memoir or a series of autobiographical essays. They just can't do it. Uh, And so, you know, they have to go by what seems like it has a truth value. With the the larger presses, I mean, the major presses, Simon & Schuster, Doubleday, etc., well, they do have the resources. And uh, it it had been, at least for, you know, most of my life, uh, you know, part of their obligation to check the facticity of memoirs they were publishing. What happened with Fry's book is that Nantalise, in a response, of well-quoted response she gave uh, after uh, the book came out and after the uh, exposés came out, uh, said, uh, truth, truth is not the value that the book should be judged by. I found that wildly irresponsible. Uh, now, I wouldn't find it irresponsible if the book were published as fiction. And as as people who know the story of Fry know, he was shopping it around as fiction uh, for for quite a long time. I think seventeen publishers rejected the uh, the version of the book as novel. Uh, and so it was only when he turned it into to nonfiction that it got taken by Doubleday and et cetera. But I. I uh, I, I certainly think they had an obligation to check it out, but Nantalie seemed seemed to to rather blithely uh, reject that idea. So, as a society, I'm you know as consumers of content, uh, do you think we have allowed somehow this 
uh, or or somehow have perpetuated this appetite for these kinds of stories. Um, you know, essentially, I'm asking: Have we created uh, this monster? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, who the we is? I mean, and we in terms of you know everyone's culpability and participating in the culture. Yeah, I mean, everything is about story now. I mean, when you check your news feed in the morning, uh, I mean, sure, there, there are a couple of international stories and a few national stories. And then there are just these human interest stories, these, you know, reality-based stories, you know, about someone finding an alligator in their front yard, uh, <laughs> you know, et cetera, that, that, you know, we seem to have an endless appetite for. Uh, and, you know, reality TV, of course, you know, as part of that, you know, just phones, the uh, however present documentation is, uh, you know, I think is, is part of that, too. Um, we don't want to experience things so much as, you know, see the film of our experience uh -huh. of things. So. Now, in terms of... Uh, this this particular subject is there anything that we haven't discussed that you feel is very important in uh, understanding um, how the scandal has you know shaped memoirs and and going forward um, how how things should be? Yeah, I, I, I quite frankly, I'm not sure how it has. I, I would think the major presses, you know. Uh, don't want a repeat of what came to seem like a debacle. On the other hand, it sold a lot of books. Right. You know? I mean, Doubleday, you know, they didn't refund, you know, the the, the millions of dollars they made from from all of the copies uh, that Fry sold. So, so I'm not sure if if a lesson really emerged other than Fry perhaps being scapegoated. I mean, to which you know I might. Uh, I mean, he was scapegoated to, in the sense that I think what he's done has been done quite a bit, and he got caught. Um, so, uh, you know, he's totally culpable. On the other hand, he's he's also not alone, I think. Uh, and again, I, I'm sure, you know, this... And, and I, let me just add one thing, too. You know, performance, the creation of persona. I mean, these are all parts of autobiographical writing. And nonfiction writers always uh, have understood that. But they've, I think, also understood that along with that goes a, a certain responsibility uh, to represent things. Again, to represent memory, which is already unreliable, uh, <laughs> as uh, as reliably as, as they possibly can. <laughs> So we always ask our guests that experts this uh, final question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the literary scandal surrounding A Million Little Pieces, who or what would that be? I, I think it would be, uh, again, uh, a, a desire for uh, sensationalism. Uh, and, uh, you know, a desire to, which I think uh, one experiences very differently in fiction and nonfiction. One of the things I always used to say to my classes, look, if you, if you don't think genre is important, uh, you know, t 
tell me what uh, the difference is in your uh, empathetic or emotional reaction to, you know, your neighbor having a, a heart attack on the lawn and keeling over and a character in a TV show, you know, doing it. It really matters. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think something happens, uh, happened to someone, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're removing uh, a bit of the critical distance that fiction gives you right? Uh, you may be very emotionally involved with a character, but there's still that critical distance where you know you're reading about a character. It's um, much more intense and personal when you're reading uh, you know, uh, about someone uh, who's representing, you think, their own experience. And, but, uh, but I think people, people just really, I mean, it's an age of, of endless sensation. You know, everything's available. And if everything's available, it keeps ratcheting up, you know, our desire for intensity. David, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, it's been a, a really interesting conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> I enjoyed it. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. I loved talking to David today about this uh, scandal. I mean, it's so Mm -hmm. nuanced, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's a long history yeah. there. It was fascinating hearing about uh, uh, the you know the, the the history behind it with uh, Miriam McCarthy, mm-hmm. uh, Lillian Hellman, and et cetera. And uh, that Dick surprising Cabot. too that she sued her, and even knowing that the whole thing was made up, right? <laughs> right? Like that's very very bold. To it's sue cre- someone. It, well, it just speaks to like his point about how sort of ambiguous or sort of nebulous this uh, this truth is right you can't quite pin it down and it has everything to do with intention and he said attitude which i found fascinating thinking about attitude when it comes to a writer and how important it is for them to have you know the right attitude when they're doing right a specific kind of genre well what was interesting too is that how he went on to explain that it really hurt hellman's uh, mm-hmm. career afterward. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this with uh, James Fry, how it didn't seem to, I mean, yes, he was the scapegoat and he was punished kind of momentarily, but then he's now like still very actively writing and producing material. And somehow it's just kind of got washed under the rug. It's a different time, I yeah. guess. Well, that, no, you know? <laughs> no, but I th- it's, but it's, a, it's one in the same at the same point. And I think, you know, what we should do is we should do a follow-up episode about that, um, the the that debacle um the helmet oh yeah debacle. we should we should get good. into that and and you know learn a little bit about that and sort of can, you can we can hold the two subjects and the two events up against each other i think that would be fascinating mm-hmm. i i keep thinking about uh when david was talking about uh, the, the the word truth and the different mm. what it means can be so many different things right because when we think of truth we just think of the truth right mm, right but like how black many and white truth. yeah yeah <laughs> facts um but how many times have you said wow that movie was so truthful but you know that the movie is fake right but you're saying right. it was truthful it's true to like a lived experience or something yes it's so like- the word true is not is not black and white. You do have this barometer inside of you where you're like, it just feels true to me. Yes. Um, right. which, that's the I've scariest thing that too, before. because that depends on who you are and where you are. So it could be true to one person, but exactly. not true to what actually happened. Or <laughs> Well, that's why semantics are so important because mm. as, um, as uh, David pointed out, you know, fry shopping this around as fiction, no one really cared. And mm-hmm. then suddenly memoir, oh, it's real. Suddenly mm-hmm. it really resonates with people, right? Mm-hmm. Based that on really a true happened. story, famously uh, uh, the the opening um, of Fargo, which was a fiction, a fictional movie, but they threw that in there as part of the sort of world to sort of get you more right. into it. But it was an intentional kind of move as writers to do that to, to sort of lull you into thinking that it was based mm. on a true story well i i remember growing up my one of my favorite movies and i haven't watched it in a long time so i have no idea how it holds up <laughs> but <laughs> uh 
my favorite and the scariest movie I'd ever seen was Fire in the Sky, which is like an alien abduction movie. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen it. Right? It's, you know, in the 90s, alien abduction. It was at its prime. And okay. it right before the movie starts, it says, based on a true story. And I remember I almost fell right. off of my chair. I was like, Which, Yeah, what? it's like, this is all true. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And this is so I mean, loose, that well, It's crazy what those words do to you mm-hmm. as, as a consumer or as a viewer or as a, a reader. You in a sense you put a certain level of trust in the uh, in this case filmmakers but in the case of you know the writer the mm-hmm. author mm-hmm. so you sort of uh, like oprah did you let your guard down yeah and then you know you feel uh, in a sense betrayed or duped when you realize afterwards um yeah. what the they do that in horror is. movies a lot these days uh-huh. I feel, you know like you'll see like this is based on like actual events you know mm-hmm. and like who knows how literal some of the scenes are. You know, of mm-hmm. course they then you watch this like horrifying like crazy story <laughs> that you're like how, how well, i mean like but <laughs> i think it's interesting just from like a a perception and then like how that translates to like a monetary perspective, like how much people buying into the narrative, you know, Mm -hmm. he talked about memoirs today, all having what he said, the narrative hook and that they all tend to rely on exotic narratives. And it's, it's true, you know, like you're scrolling through your newsfeed and you read one kind of like hook of a headline. You're like, what, what, what is that about? Like, I got to see what's going on with that guy in Ohio or whatever it is. But then some just like, you know, the war goes on in Ukraine and you're like, okay, we know, we know, but like, give me <laughs> right. something juicy, you know? <laughs> like, Which is like, it? that should be very juicy, right? <laughs> the, it, the war. it was, and then it got, <laughs> and then it's just like ongoing. So now we're interested in like the, you know, the human interest stuff does. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Real. it requires a little bit more from us to sort of conte- try and contextualize the, these broader sort of world events you know, it requires a lot from you. Whereas, you know, and as David was saying, which was also so interesting about the style when we were talking, you know, you, you sort of teed him up with um, oh, the stream, stream of consciousness, consciousness writing yeah. and the way where he took that was interesting, which is that like, you know, it's his writing's actually pretty flat and it pretty <laughs> right, much spoon plain. feeds. <laughs> he pretty much spoon feeds like the story to the audience. Um, you know, he's sort of obviously a more refined reader of you know uh fiction nonfiction of literature um mm-hmm. but to have his perspective is fascinating it's like yeah it's sort of anyway that what what this guy excelled at fry was just sort of being a juice gossip mm-hmm. gossipy salacious, salacious yeah. and b you know just sort of saying it in a not very dynamic or nuanced or layered way mm-hmm. so he was like a boring I, writer with a salacious fake story <laughs> and people just gobbled it up i wonder how much you know like just time uh and where we are in society really contributes to this because i thought it was really interesting hearing david describe like what he finds is an interesting memoir really depends on like the style of the writer and right. like how they kind of see themselves in their mm-hmm. own existence in the world versus these very kind of like salacious and like mm. juicy memoirs of today and how that ties in with like our technology and our constant mm. access to information. Like I wonder if the memoir back in the day just was so fascinating because that was a way of like kind of experiencing something through someone else mm-hmm. in like a quieter time versus like us seeing 
these crazy things all the time. And then you read like an old school memoir and you kind of feel like, oh, this is like not, it's like too tame. <laughs> well, you may, you bring up a good point. It's like, why would you read the memoir if you could just watch the interview? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but and, I, and I'm not, I mean, obviously you read the memoir because it's, it's an art form in which you can really get into the mind and the uh, experience of what the person was going through, which is, mm-hmm. I think is to David's point, that makes an interesting memoir. Right. But right. And that's the, that's the difference, right? Because you can experience it versus being told what happened. Yeah. And, and well, to a degree, you also need a kind of, you know, literate, you need to be literate, right? You n- not, not just to know how to read, but you need to know how to, you know, have a sense for language and what the writer is doing with language. And I think, you know, I, 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 I fear that because of, you know, technology, sort of our collective literacy or ability to interpret literature has gone down. I'm probably, I'm pretty sure mine has. <laughs> right. I feel like, but, I know, you know, like we've almost be able lost to the ability for subtlety or nuance. Yes. Like to be able to sit with a, a piece of work and read it and, you know, really sit with it to try and understand what the author is trying to do requires time, it yeah. requires patience, and it yeah. requires a certain... You know, I don't know. Uh, I do think style. I, I do like that he said that, though, because I mean, some people I have friends who just the way that they can relay a story is so like they have like natural like storytelling yeah. reader abilities. That Thank is you, fascinating. That's nice that you're like, gosh, I, I just don't have that skill you know like they can share a shared experience and i'm like yeah the way that they're sharing that is truthful because i i live that same experience but they have a way of just choosing the words in mm. such a way that just makes it kind of invites you in more as a listener and it's a real <laughs> skill which is like, it is you're just looking for good people who are good with words yeah and the people who have that skill have that responsibility to tell us not good with their take uh, scandal but good with words <laughs> now we can all be good with scandal yeah <laughs> that's a little easier um we what did we end up Clayton because David ended up sending and I wrote this down um the age of endless sensationalism to Mm. the alarmist jail right I did I get that right yes our desire our desire desire for for sensationalism sensationalism. but yeah I just love the age of endless sensationalism Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail so we ended up throwing the publisher Nantalise in jail uh-huh. and we gave the big slap to stream of consciousness writing. <laughs> For duping the audience into yes, uh, yes. thinking thinking what <laughs> Eric confused. was really our guest Eric was really championing championing I can't even say that word. Championing. Yes. He was really after stream of consciousness writing yes. for its Yes. I think we went heavy on the responsibility, which I think is still really valid. But uh, we did th- talk a, uh, in our episode about the audience's responsibility uh-huh. and how much they are desiring of this type of material. Right. So it's, you know, it did make our way into the, the conversation. And I thought it was really fascinating to hear uh, David kind of really kind of dance between how where the responsibility lies, right. whether it is mm-hmm. the writer, whether, right. whether it is the audience and what he ended up actually throwing in, you know, jail himself. So I feel like we should do a little switch here. I mm-hmm. think we okay. should send the age of endless sensationalism to the alarmist jail. And I think we slap Nantalise instead. I like it. 
Um, and just because, you know, I think the responsibility may, or maybe we send both Nantalise and the age of sensationalism, endless sensationalism to the alarmist jail. Well, you know what I like about the age of endless sensationalism? It's definitely a broader stroke, but I feel like both writer and reader fit within that, right? right. Yeah. The writer uh-huh. feels the need to produce that because they're feeding it's like a self-feeding right. machine you know and then to lease and the publisher the need to uh check it because they're trying to sell something that they think right. the audience wants yeah so it, it encompasses the publisher the writer and the audience right okay i like that i like it too so then uh so then in that case we keep the slap on stream of consciousness Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, like David did not speak at all to really uh, about the stream of consciousness writing. It was more about sort of James Fry's like flat style. Right. Which, I mean, I style think he also hinted at the fact that it is a flat style. Yeah. It's not. It's not a very. Um, no, yeah, he said it is. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. I'm going to call it the age of endless sensationalism. You're going to the alarmist jail. I love that. I love that phrase. Um, Before we go, I want to encourage our listeners to please rate, review and subscribe. It's very important um, that we really get more eyes and ears on the show. Clayton, uh, do you have anything that you can read to kind of uh, give our listeners a, an idea of what a review might sound like? It doesn't have to be much. It could literally just be like, love the show. You know, I know this is an episode about uh, literary uh, structures and uh, <laughs> it could be a stream of consciousness review that you leave. Mm-hmm. Of course. That that might be fun. I have one from B Water 77 that says worth every second. I started this podcast from episode 1 last summer. It's worth every second. The hosts have great chemistry, are funny and tackle big issues with humor. I've learned a lot. Simple. There you go. That's, That's it. it. Boom. Um we really appreciate everyone who's done it and if you haven't yet, please do so. And thanks again to David for uh joining us today and helping us uh you know understand this this uh, literary scandal and stay tuned because next week we are going to be covering the Attica prison uprising Erios powered by ACAST 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.